Hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Um, let's give a hand to the youth and, uh, and for the great meal that they provided us this morning. We really appreciate all that they, uh, all that they did. Okay, I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to Psalm 25. We'll get there in just a moment. This is week three in our series called Transforming the Next Generation. I just want to tell you where we are in this series. This is our 25th year of ministry uh, at Grace Community Church. We started in 1995. And as the elders and staff approached this year, we were asking ourselves, what is God doing in our midst? And how do we need to respond to his work among us? And as we thought about it, we thought about the necessity of really equipping the next generation. When we started Grace, we had a lot of young families, young kids, they're off in doing life now. And so we felt compelled to think about, what, what about the next generation? We're 25 years old. How do we really impart life, meaning, value, purpose to the next generation? And so we began thinking about what would it mean for us to transform that generation, and it became very obvious to us that we have building needs, needs for new youth space, needs for new children's space, needs for an expanded atrium, and so on. And so, uh, as I said in the video, we really encourage you to take a look at the, at the art, artistic renderings and the floor plan in the, in the atrium so that you have a sense as to what we're doing. A lot of people have asked us over the last week, so then what are we going to do with the space that's currently our children's space? Well, that opens up all sorts of opportunities for adult space. And a lot of people have asked us for things that could happen in those areas. We have, we've had to say, well, we can't do that right now because those places are occupied. But now with this new space, it opens up all sorts of opportunities for new adult opportunities as well. So um, in this series, we've been looking at the stewardship of our resources that underlies this vision for advancing um, and transforming the next generation. So this morning, I want to talk about loving God as the generous owner of all things. And I want to start off with a really fun story. About 25 years ago, my dad called me, and my dad uh, wanted to do something incredibly generous for our oldest daughter, Sarah. He wanted to help her establish a Roth IRA. My dad was a certified financial planner, and he said, I'd, I'd like to help establish a Roth IRA for Sarah. So he worked with his accountant. We worked with our accountant. We used money that she had earned from her summer job, and we uh, provided, we established an IRA, not just an IRA, but a Roth IRA that would provide tax-free income after she retired. Well, she was only 16 at the time, and when I explained all this to her, she said, gee, Dad, thanks. Can I have the car keys? We got something happening tonight. I said, sure, you can have the car keys. I mean, she sort of understood it a little bit in principle, but no way did she understand it in practice. So for the next 20 years, I received quarterly statements from Vanguard addressed to me with these words under my name. You know, guardian, Uniform Gift to Minors Act. And I would open those things up and see how well the account was doing or not doing, as was the case in some years. And after she graduated from, from college, I would periodically say, so when you're ready to, you know, kind of manage this, 
Let me know. I'll give you the login information. You can start doing this. And you know how life goes. She, she would say things like, well, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to England, so this is not the best time. Or she'd say, Dad, um, I got two kids in diapers, so this is not the best time. Or she'd say, Dad, we had a tree fall in our house, and I got to manage the reconstruction, so this is not the best time. And then the day came where she said, I'm ready. So I took a, a picture, made a PDF of the information, and I texted it to her. Within moments, I got a call back from my daughter. She said, Dad, are you kidding me? Do you see how much is in that account? I said, yeah, it's a nice, nice little nest egg, you know, something to, something to really build on. She said, no, you, 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 don't, you don't understand. Like, like we've been working on our, on our financial plan, and this is a game changer for us. She said, I, I feel like we've won the lottery. Well, it wasn't that big. <laughs> Nowhere near. But I said, I said, I know it's a help, and that's why granddad did this. She said, well, if I call him and tell him thank you, will he think it's weird that I haven't noticed this for the past 20 years? <laughs> I said, no, call him. He'll love it. My dad's 91, sharp as a tack. And then she said this to me. Here's what she said. She said, oh, I just love granddad. He did something of value for me before I even recognized its value. And I want to do that for you this morning. Because before you ever knew the value that you have, God gifted you with things, gifted you with assets, gifted you with game-changing benefits. And by understanding what those things are, you then have the opportunity to fall in love in a fresh way, in a new way with God. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. So let's look at our generous, big-hearted, open-handed God and see what he's done for us. Let me show you why he owns everything and why he loves gifting things to you. Well, the first thing that we see uh, about God, a general reason that God is the owner of all, is that he, he owns everything in the world because he created everything in the universe. And so we see that in Psalm chapter 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. Now, that is a wonderful statement about ownership. But to really understand this, you have to understand the background of the psalm, and it's a very colorful background. So uh, after David established his capital in Jerusalem, he wanted to make Jerusalem the center for worshiping God. To do this, he needed to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, I talked about the Ark of the Covenant last week. There's another artistic renditioning, uh, rendition of it. The Ark of the Covenant was this box overlaid with gold with a gold lid with two angels bowing forward, bowing forward to empty space. But the idea was when the Shekinah glory came and dwelt in the tabernacle, the angels were, were artistically rendered as worshiping the invisible God of the universe. So this was a statement about the universality of God, the infinite nature of the God of the universe. Well, the Ark of the Covenant had been sort of, you know, neglected for years, and David wants to bring it into Jerusalem. So David does bring it into Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the priests, 
And the day that it is successfully brought into Jerusalem, I imagine there being a parade route going up to the city. People are lining the streets two, three, four, five deep. And the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant up into the city, and it's going very slowly because every six steps they pause and they make sacrifices to the God of the universe. And David, David is dancing in front of the Ark, which normally could be considered a little bit awkward. In fact, his wife, Michael, felt it was very awkward, but he was dancing with joy before the God of the universe. And so Psalm 24 is written to commemorate the day that David successfully did this. <clears throat> and so uh, there's this time of, of great, great worship. But David is thinking in the back of his mind, okay, do the people really understand what's going on? Do they really understand the greatness of this infinite personal God? It's a question we need to ask ourselves periodically. Do we really understand how great God is? how magnificent, how eternal, how tremendous this God is. Do we really understand that? David's wondering that. And so David pens the end of Psalm 24 as a command for the people to pause and reflect on how great God is. And these are very hard verses to understand until I explain one thing. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Okay, so the King of glory represented by the Ark of the Covenant, the invisible God, is coming through the gates into the city of Jerusalem and people are lining the streets. David continues, who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord who is mighty in battle. Now, why is David addressing gates and doors? Well, he's not really addressing gates and doors. It's a Hebrew figure of speech designed to say, the people who are in the gates and the doors, the people who are in front of the gates and doors, the people who are lining the gates and the doors, the people who are on the parade route near the gates and the doors, it's those people who he's addressing. He's addressing the people next to, near, in, and among the gates and the doors. He said, you, you guys, lift up your heads and understand who God really is. And then he does it again. He says almost the exact same thing, but in a slightly different way. Another refrain. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come into your midst. Who is this king of glory? You know, all the rest of the nations believed in these small, little, nasty gods and goddesses, gods of a region, gods of a river, gods of a wood. David is saying, our God is not that God. Our God is the infinite personal God of the universe. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And he wants them to, to stand in awe of who this God is. So that leads to another question. What is this God like? Well, notice the two terms that he uses, King of glory and Lord of hosts. King of glory and Lord of hosts. He's emphasizing two particular things about God. One is that he's the king of glory. King means that he rules. King means that he is invisibly present among us. The idea being that when the Shekinah glory cloud came into the tabernacle or the temple, the God of the universe was manifestly present. 
Is God manifestly present right here, right now? Yes. He abides with you. The Holy Spirit is inside you. The triune God is present with you in the abiding ministry of Christ and in you in the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And our Abba Father is invisibly present. His spiritual presence pervades all things. That's the God David says we worship. And then he also says that we worship him as the the Lord of hosts. And I will contextualize this for us living in the New Testament. Lord of hosts means he is the Lord who commands his angels. Sometimes I ask people, you know, have you ever encountered the ministry of an angel? And I have a number of people say, you know, I I think I have, actually. I think I have. One time Ed Schmidt and I were in Cuba. It was late at night. We're driving uh, back to our hotel in the city of Maroon. And uh, up ahead of us, it was a dark street with no signs, no lights, no reflective things on the pavement. We're driving, and all of a sudden, we see a horse-drawn carriage. And we're coming up on this horse-drawn carriage, and we're going to smash into that horse-drawn carriage and kill the people in that carriage. Ed quickly swerves into the left lane of a two-lane highway, but now we're coming into oncoming traffic, a large truck, and we are about ready to hit that truck. Ed swerves back into the right-hand lane, and I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. How did that happen? Now, I don't know if it was an angel who helped us or not, but, I mean, Ed's a good driver. He's not that good. That was a miracle. And I think, okay, Lord, you are the Lord of hosts who miraculously delivers in time of need. That's the kind of God that he's talking about, the Lord of hosts. And so David, at the end of the psalm, see the word salah? The end of the psalm, he introduces this little musical notation, and it just says, pause and think about that. Pause and consider. Pause and meditate. He is the God who is infinitely present. He is the God who commands his armies to protect us. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the first two two verses. The earth is the Lord's. Wait, wait, who's that Lord? The Lord mighty in battle? The Lord who is infinitely present? The earth is the Lord's. He is the dynamic, living, infinite, personal God. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. So think about what God owns if he owns the entire world. He owns the raw materials, like the gold, the limestone with which we build buildings. He owns the raw materials for food that we enjoy. He owns the metal that is buried in the earth. He owns the sand, and the sand has silica from which we make We make chips for computers. He owns the raw materials on planet Earth. He owns things that are deep underneath the ocean, the visible things and the things which are microscopic, little microscopic plankton. He owns those things. The large large fish in the ocean, the ecosystems on planet Earth. He owns those things. 
The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He owns the beauty of the mountains. One of my favorite places in all of the U.S. is the Maroon Bells. He owns that place, that place of, place of real estate that is so pretty and so beautiful. The rugged areas in the southwest, like the Grand Canyon, he owns those places as well. But he also, he also owns the cities of the world, the great cities of the world. He owns the real estate under those cities. He owns the raw materials with which those cities were created. Places like, like New York, uh, he owns the raw materials. I mean, uh, and the real estate. People may own massively expensive penthouses, but God owns the real estate underneath those. Places like Paris that are so beautiful, God owns the real estate under that as well. Amazingly, though, God owns something else, and God owns the, the, the money in the world economy. So you look at a place like Wall Street, or you look at the NASDAQ, and, and is God sovereign over how markets work? Yes, he is. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. Imagine a couple who has recently purchased um, a house, and that house is theirs. They could go into that house and say, you know, this house is ours, and all it contains do they own the insulation between the walls? Yeah. Do they own the nails and the studs? Yeah. Do they own the food in the refrigerator? Yeah. Do they own uh, the clothes in the closets? Yeah. The house is theirs and all it contains. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And, and, and so what that tells us is that the earth is not a chaotic, dark, dangerous painful place. It is that way sometimes in this fallen world. But in God's economy, the earth is a place for the joyful enrichment of humankind and especially the joyful enrichment of those who follow Christ. Look, I have seen incredibly dire poverty in uh, certain parts of, well, Cuba in certain parts of, of the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And I have seen followers of Jesus in that most dire poverty live with joy with the assets they have, saying, this is the Lord's. And we take joyful, joyful pleasure in the use of it. I have seen people live in the height of affluence and wealth, depressed, frustrated, angry, because they didn't have more. It's a matter of perspective. If God owns everything, we can look at the things that we have as, as joyful um, gifts from him. And so let's tease out an idea from this psalm. Psalm 24 would suggest this, because God owns the earth and sustains the earth. All our possessions are ultimately his. And it's not just a statement of fact, because he is present with us as king, we can trust him with those possessions, even to the point of generosity. And part of what God is, uh, David is, is wanting for the people who read Psalm 24 was, is to say, God is the king of the universe. God owns everything. And I can, I can trust him with my assets, seeing them as a, as a gift from him. 
Um, that means he provided our assets, he can protect our assets, he can prosper our assets because he owns our assets. And I, I want to give you one, one quick takeaway. You know, we can, we can get confused about this. And we can be like one of my grandchildren was when she was two. Well, they were all like this at two. Uh, and, and it would be mine. Mine. I would move toward her to play with some of her stuff. Mine. Mine. And that's what we do toward God. We, we say, mm, mine. Mine. House, mine. Car, mine. Real estate, mine. Investments, mine. Art. Mine. And what this psalm is an invitation to do is to say, God, you are so generous to me. Thank you. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. I love you for your generosity. Now we move to a second psalm. And the second psalm gives us a far more specific reason why God is the generous owner. Uh, and God owns everything in my life because he created me but he was generous in what he gave to me. Now I want to read uh, Psalm 139, 13 through 18, and then, then we'll dig into the details. David says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. That's from the New Living Translation. I love the way that particular verse renders, uh, that translation renders verse 13. Then David goes on. He says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And then he says, how precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You see up on the screens that grain of sand, or that handful of sand. So if I were to take you to, uh, let's say, the East Coast, North Carolina, the Texas coast, Padre Island, and you scooped up a handful of sand, and I say, okay, count the number of sand in there. That would be a hard task. Like, that would take you a, ve a very long time to do that. Well, you know, David is saying, um, God, your, your, your thoughts toward me are so precious, they outnumber all the grains of sand in the world. A, a depth of love. And so let's tease out some I ideas from, from this. How does God love, love us? Well, he, he presided over all of my future capacities as I was being woven together in the womb. From conception to birth, God presided over how your physical body would form. You know, all of us probably have things we like about our body. We have things we don't like about our body. We're very conscious of how body image works in the year 2020. A lot of our conceptions about body image come from the standards of the world, not from the standards that God has set forth in the scriptures. And what God says about our, our bodies is that God, with immense love, oversaw our formation even down to our human genome and how that would develop in the womb. He saw what our capacities 
would be like he knew the emergent natural gifts that would come. He knew the emergent spiritual gifts that would come our way in time. And if that's the case, if God made me and gifted me with a body that works, that's a generous God. A God who crafted a power pack that allows me to have a will that can exercise authority. This afternoon, some of you are going to be sitting on the couch, and you're going to have a powerful thing in your hand called a remote. I have a powerful thing in my hand called a remote. And your body, your power pack can say, I want to put that on pause for a second because I want to go and I want to get some guacamole and some fritos and then come back and sit down and watch the game. Now, how, do you take for granted the fact that you can, you can do that with your thumb? Well, it seems silly and stupid in a way, but God gave you a body that gives you power to do a small thing as well as many large things. God gave you, he presided over the, your future capacities, small and large, in the womb. He's a generous God. Notice also a second way God loves us as he carefully crafted me with love. I love the way that David, David says this because he's picturing the womb like a secret place, like an artist's workshop where God acts with love. He's picturing a weaver, an embroiderer, a knitter sitting in a workshop decorating cloth with needle. He's, he's looking at the way you were formed in the womb, the way a master artist would form a piece of cloth, knitting you together with beauty and with wisdom. If that is the way God looks at you, you know, that God regards you as his artistic masterpiece. And he gifts you with a body and a mind that can do various things. And then we see a third way, and that is he, he saw your future days like an author writing a book. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out. When I think about this verse, I think about one of my favorite authors, Charles Dickens. He's the guy that wrote The Christmas Carol and Great Expectations. And Charles Dickens used to write these characters that were very vivid characters. And sometimes in the course of the novel, a character would die. And Charles Dickens often said that he would leave his place, uh, his place of writing and he would walk around London weeping and crying over the character that had died because he'd come to love this character. Well, the God of the universe is, is like that. He, he sees all the days in the book that are written for you before there was even one of them. He's a generous, gifting, loving God. And I think David wants us to apprehend these things emotionally. So David's appeal is this. He crafted my body like an expert weaver. He crafted my life and significance like an expert author. He has shaped me with mysterious complexity. And therefore, God is to me like an ever-present and ever-loving father. Now, so far, what I've argued is that God owns everything in two ways. He owns the universe because he created everything. He owns me because he created everything in me. And then now I have a responsibility. And my responsibility as a steward of what I've been given is, is well, it is to bring God into my financial world 
See, you by nature are an economic being, right? You're an economic being because from the very beginning of your life, you have the capacity to add value and in time derive an income. You're an economic being by nature. You know, God put people in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and he put them there to do something, to add value. And so the challenge of God owns everything and he gifts you with much is to bring God into your financial world. And that brings us to Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. So let me, rather than reading it, let me, let me tell you the story of this and read the climax. This is Luke 12, 13 through 21. Once there was a, a very wealthy man who owned a large farm. The farm was blessed with deep and rich soil. And each year that soil would produce the best crops in the entire region. And every year he would have bumper crops. And every year he would have more and more grain to put in his silos and his barns. And one year, one year he had way more grain than he can possibly store. And so he says to himself, um, you know, what am I going to do? I, I've got no place to store my grain and my goods. So he has a conversation with himself. He says, self, what are you going to do? You got so much, you got no place to store it. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down these barns. I'm going to build much larger ones. And I'm going to store all my grain and my goods in this, these much larger barns. And then I'm going to say to myself, man, I've made it. Self, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the thing about this parable that is conspicuously obvious is that there is no reference to God, no reference to family, no reference to anybody else except the rich farmer. You know, it's, it's not like he says, you know, God, thank you so much for making me a really good businessman. Thank you. Lord, how do you want me to manage this wealth? It's not, not like he's saying, uh, man, Lord, thank you for what I can do for my family. How do you want me to manage this wealth? It's, it's all about him. He has excluded God entirely from his financial life. And so then the, the parable takes a very ominous turn because he doesn't know how long his life is going to be. None of us do. And in the parable, God intervenes and uh, the, guy, the guy dies and God says to him, you fool, you will die this very night and then who will get everything you worked for? He did not include God in his financial world. And because he did not include God in his financial world, now he hadn't planned for the future. And he is not wealthy with respect toward God, not wealthy with respect toward eternity. And Jesus is giving us a very good lesson from a, a bad example. And the lesson is this. When we invite God into our financial world, it does something for us. It breaks the cycle of greed, and it makes us think about, think about the eternal nature of wealth. That's what he's trying to tell us in the parable. This guy was, was greedy, What's absent is reference to God. What's absent is reference to his family. What's absent is reference to people. It's all about him. He excluded God from his financial world. When you bring God in, it breaks that cycle of greed, and it, it, it says to us, how do I manage this money 
from the vantage point of eternity. So I'm, I'm wealthy with respect to God. So think about where we've, where we've been so far. In Psalm 25, we see that God made everything. In Psalm 139, we see that God made us. And in, and in Luke chapter 12, we see that we've got a responsibility. And that responsibility is bring God into your financial life. Now, with that in mind, let's look at some very, very specific takeaways about loving the God who owns everything. Takeaway number, well, first of all, let's look at the main idea of these three passages. When I really comprehend how much the creator God loves me and rules over my life, by the way, that's what my daughter recognized when she realized, oh, my grandfather helped me set up a Roth IRA when I was 16 before I could, I could not possibly understand the value of that. Now that she's almost 40, she realizes, wow, that, that showed amazing love. When I truly comprehend how much the Creator God loves me and rules over my life, I will joy, joyfully submit my entire financial situation to Him. Why, why would I do that? Well, because... God gifted me with so much. And I will seek him for how to best use my assets and my money. In other words, I'm now bringing him into the totality of my financial life. So here's takeaway number one. Each time you receive your paycheck, express gratitude. Express, express gratitude. <clears throat> um, your paycheck may be less than you hoped. That may be true for a lot of, you know, for most of us, we could always think, oh, it'd be great to have more. It might be more than you hoped. I've heard some people say that. Uh, your paycheck may be just right. doesn't matter. What you do is, is you say, God, God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for me. And here's the, the unexpected outcome. The long-term discipline of gratitude begins to change your thoughts about, about money so that you, you think about generosity. So, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, my, my father was, was very generous to, to us in the sense of providing vacations that would generate family unity. And that impulse toward generosity created remarkable unity amongst the siblings. And so here now, I'm a father and a grandfather, and so what, what is my impulse? My impulse is an impulse toward generosity. That's like, that's my heart, to be generous with my time, with my, my words toward my children and toward my grandchildren. So how much more is that true of us with God? If we express gratitude and sense God is a generous God, then how much more are we going to have that impulse toward generosity because God is generous? So the more I express gratitude, uh, the more um, for what God has given me, the more, the more generous I become. Gratitude begets generosity. And then uh, a second takeaway is this. Each time you make a charitable contribution, express gratitude. Express gratitude. From cover to cover, the Bible encourages generosity, right? Uh, Abraham gave toward Melchizedek. Abraham tithed stuff to Melchizedek, who was the king priest in what would become Jerusalem. So there's generosity in Genesis. In Revelation, Jesus chides the church of Laodicea for not being generous. 
And so from Genesis to Revelation, we have this, this mindset that we should be expressing gratitude when we give. And so one of the things that I used to do when I was still writing checks, I write some checks still, but very few. <laughs> but when I was still writing checks, one of the things I would do is I would actually get on my knees as I was writing out my contribution check to Grace Community Church. I would get on my knees and I would say, God, thank you that we were able to do this. Thank you that we have the means by which we can invest in the ministry at Grace Community Church. Now that we do it through push pay, I've got to be disciplined in a little bit of a different way because when the email comes in that that contribution has been given, my discipline is to pause and say, Father, I thank you that you've given us the means to be generous to Grace Community Church. And if it's other charitable destinations, I say, Father, thank you that we could give to this organization or that organization. But every time you make a charitable contribution, move into that, that discipline of saying, God, thank you that I'm able to do this. Thank you. Because these gifts and my ability to do this come from you, and I know that I'm building treasure in heaven. So here, here's a couple of prayers that you could, you could pray along these lines. Father, thank you that I got the money to do this. Thank you that this contribution is building treasures in heaven. Thank you that I'll see these assets again in heaven. That's Jesus' promise. Thank you that you will use these gifts to advance your kingdom supernaturally. Thank you this is part of the sowing and reaping process. So I'm giving expectantly that I'll be able to continue to give and to give more. And here's a, here's a third takeaway. Third takeaway is periodically pray, Father, Father, how do you want me to use these resources that you have given me? And then expect to God, God to give you an answer. Maybe God will say, you're doing great. Keep up the good work. Maybe he'll say, I'm doing something new in your life, and I want you to stretch. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to empower to be faithful in more. Maybe God will say, I'm calling you to a season of sacrifice. But it's important to, to ask that question periodically. I think it's important to ask that question at the beginning of every year as you're making your financial plans. But that's an important question to ask. So you're bringing God into your regular financial activity. The point is ask God for direction and listen. So I, I think you know, our capital stewardship campaign is an opportunity to think about God's ownership for us as a community of believers. Um, and in that vein, you know, what I want to do is I want to extend to you a, a request that you would pray that prayer as we are considering what we're doing with this stewardship campaign. Um, I also want to invite you to an event that's coming up in, uh, oh, about 10 days or so. And we are having an early commitment gathering at our church, Tuesday, February 11th at 6 p.m. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the building. We're going to talk about the purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, we're going to talk about why we're doing this in our 25th year. It'll be an opportunity for fellowship information or a challenge to pray. We have sent out some invitations. If that invitation did not get to you or uh, if you're not on our list and you would like to come, uh, it's easy to register out in the atrium. Um, and, you know, Jared did a great encouragement for us to do that uh, just a little, little bit ago. 
But I, I want to encourage you to ask God, Lord, my local church feels called in their 25th year to do something big to impact the next generation. Father, how do you want me to respond to that? What do you want me to do in light of that? And let God tell you what that would be. And we would, we would love to have you participate in this early commitment gathering. As I often say, I love our church. I love our church. I love our church for what's happened over the past 25 years, but I am super excited about what the staff and the elders and our ministry teams are preparing for the next 25 years. Super excited about that. We've got a lot of great things in store. And my prayer is that as a, as a family, God would pour out his blessing and grace as we move in that direction.